time. A mentor is a wise and trusted counselor. Now, does everyone remember what your homework, was, homework assignment was at the end of the sermon from last Sunday? Does anyone, did anyone follow through on that? I challenged you to think of who your mentors were and to go out of your way to thank them, acknowledging them this past week. Did anyone do that? Yeah, a few of you did? Partially. Okay. You, you got a little bit further to go, but you kind of got there? Good. Good. And for those of you who didn't, uh, didn't get the opportunity or make the opportunity to do that this past week, here's a, here's a mulligan for you. You can try to find them, uh, thank them this week. It's important to acknowledge those who have mentored us and to pass along our gratitude for the way they invested in our lives. So we'll have another chance to do that. Today we are going to continue in the series and we're going to look at four practical steps to becoming a mentor. So as we do that, would you bow with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who is a teacher. You are a God who teaches us in the way we should go. You are a God who teaches us how to live lives that are pleasing to you. You teach us the way of salvation and you teach us, Lord, uh, about heaven and about your kingdom. And so, God, as you have seen fit to be our teacher, you have primarily done that by sending teachers into our lives. You have sent those who are wiser and more mature than us to go before us to learn your ways and then to pass them on to us. And we have been the recipients of those teachers, those mentors, those people who have invested in our lives. And we thank you for that, Father. We pray that as we continue to think on this integral role of a mentor in the life of every individual... We pray, God, that you would continue to open our hearts to see the importance of it, but to also see how we, each of us, have a role to play as well, both as being mentored and also as being a mentor. And so I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would begin to do that work in our hearts, God, to begin to nudge us in the direction that you want us to go. Give us obedient hearts, Lord, to follow what you have for us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I already said, we are going to focus this morning on becoming a mentor. Now, the reason that we are focusing on specifically becoming a mentor and not being uh, the one who is being mentored, I'm going to focus on becoming a mentor. The reason I'm focusing on that is because there's no shortage of people who need mentoring. Is that not a true statement? There's no shortage of people who need mentoring because I'm looking at a whole room of them, right? And I include myself in that. We all, every last one of us, need to be mentored. We all need to be taught. We all need to have those who are more mature, wiser, that we can trust, who have gone before us, to then reach back and give us a helping hand, to give us encouragement, instruction, even correction. And so we're all in need of being mentored. And so there's no shortage of people in need of mentoring, but I believe that there is a big shortage in the world today of mentors. We are in short supply of people willing to step into that role of being a mentor. And I believe today that God is looking for more mentors within his church. I believe he's looking for more people who are ready to step into that role as a trusted counselor, as an advisor, as a teacher to those who are younger than them in the faith to encourage them, come alongside them, and help them move along in the way they should go. Now, in order to do this, we're going to continue to look at the example of Moses, and now we're going to transition from the relationship from Jethro to Moses, and now we're going to look at Moses to Joshua. So I want you to turn with, you, turn with me this morning, grab your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter 17, 
And let's take a closer look at this passage that was read for us just a few minutes ago. Exodus chapter 17, and we're going to begin at verse 8. Beginning in verse 8, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. And so Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. We're going to stop right there for a moment. Now, the first step we're going to recognize in becoming a mentor is you need to recognize yourself that God wants you to become a mentor. You need to recognize that God does not want you to remain in the role of only being a student. He wants you to become a teacher. You need to recognize yourself in this picture. You see, so many of us sit you know, on the pews. We sit in the back row of the, the classroom, as it were, and we say, teach me, feed me. But God says, yes, once you are taught and fed, I don't want you to just stay there perpetually being taught and fed. I want you to do something with it. I want you to become a teacher. I want you to pass along what you have learned. And so we need to recognize that God wants each of us to become a mentor to someone. And now I wonder, at what point did Moses begin to see himself as a mentor? At what point did Moses see himself as mentoring Joshua? I suspect that in this story, when we see the Amalekite army, you know, there's all these interesting names, right? The Amalekites. Who were they? The interesting thing is, we have very little clue about who they were because the scripture is fulfilled when we skip ahead to the end of the story in verse uh, 16. God says, The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. And back in verse 14, he says, I will completely blot out the memory of of Amalek from under heaven. So if you don't remember who the Amalekites are, that's because God said that was going to happen. They were destined to be erased from the pages of history and never to be remembered. Here's a little mention of them, just to show that God fulfilled what he said. These people had made war against God's people, and God says, because of that, I'm going to wipe out even your memory from history. And we see this being fulfilled. And so here we see these Amalekites come against Israel. Moses recognizes we've got a problem here. There are more more of them than us. They're better armed, better trained, probably better soldiers, more seasoned. His people weren't warriors. They'd been slaves for generations. Very few of them were trained in the art of warfare. And so here they are um, up against a superior enemy. And he's like, I've got an Amalekite problem, Joshua. And this is the first mention of Joshua anywhere in Scripture. He says, Joshua, you are going to lead our fighting men, those who are capable or strong, and you're going to lead them into battle. Now, I suspect that when Moses first asked Joshua to do this, I don't believe that he saw himself as beginning a mentorship with Joshua. I believe he was just seeing a problem that needed fixing, and Joshua appeared to be the best candidate for the job. I wonder, as we begin looking at the pages of scripture in Moses's story, did Moses feel qualified to be a mentor? Did Moses feel like he was the best suited person to lead Joshua in the way he should go, to lead him into a relationship with God? Did Moses feel like he was the best guy for the job? I suspect that he didn't. He certainly, when we look back at how he was called to become the leader of the Israelites, he certainly didn't feel qualified to lead them out of captivity. 
and God had to do a lot of persuading to convince Moses otherwise. You know, Moses had all these excuses about why God had picked the wrong guy. He didn't feel qualified for the job, and I suspect he didn't feel qualified to be a mentor either. Most of us need a lot of persuading, just like Moses did. I know I needed a lot of persuading. So, let's ask the question, what does a Christian mentor look like? What do they look like? What is sort of a a model, an example that we can set for ourselves? Here's what I've come up with of what uh, the core uh, character traits of a Christian mentor look like. Christian mentors are people who are firmly committed to following Christ no matter the cost. These aren't fair-weather followers. They are committed. No matter what's going to happen in life, they are following Jesus. These people are passionate about seeing lives changed by the power of God. Nothing thrills them more than hearing a good testimony, than hearing how someone was brought from darkness to light. It just pumps them up. It gives them a charge. They're passionate about seeing lives changed. They are people who hate sin but love sinners. They are uncompromising in what sin is and looks like, but at the same time they are gracious in dealing those dealing with people who are caught up in the effects of sin. They are quick to listen and slow to pass judgment. They refuse to settle for mediocrity and reject the attitude that simply warming a church pew is all that God requires of them. They have a desire, a deep desire, to help other people grow in Christ. And so they look for those people that they can come alongside of and invest in their life. That, to me, is a picture of what a Christian mentor looks like. But now that I've set the bar so high, who of you feel qualified to be a mentor? (laughs) I'll take my arm down. See, it's, it's a daunting task, and I suspect Moses felt the same way about being called to mentor, not only lead the people. But I want to tell you, don't write yourself off just yet. You see, often people are very quick to discredit themselves for various reasons. We'll, we'll say things like, I haven't lived a good enough Christian life, I, I'm just not qualified. Or we'll say, you know, once I've got this part of my life figured out, then I'll start really investing. But if we make all of these excuses and we keep discrediting ourselves, the reality is we'll never actually get there because there will always be something that will, that will give us the reason for why we're not qualified. And the reality is, that it's often the people who have made the most mistakes that actually have the best understanding of God's grace and his power to change people's lives. Think about the Apostle Paul, formerly went by the name of Saul. You may have heard of him. He was a notorious person for the fact that in his early life, he actually chased down Christians. He had them arrested, even condoned of their killings. He was not a good person. In fact, he opposed the work of God. And yet, it was Paul who ends up becoming the great leader of the church and mentor to countless pastors, countless teachers, and was influential in not only changing the the local world that he began in, but eventually shaping the entire world. And we are still the recipients of his example today. Also consider the guy named Moses that we've been talking about. Moses didn't start out as a great leader, did he? Moses started out as the adopted son of Pharaoh, As he's going through this time, spending his initiation years in Pharaoh's court, he begins to recognize that the Jewish people are actually his people, and he gets this conflicted sort of split personality. He's half Egyptian, half Jewish, half Hebrew, and he doesn't know quite what to do with it. And so when he sees the Hebrew people being oppressed, 
he becomes indignant to the point where when he sees one of the slaves, a fellow Jew, being fairly, um, um, unfairly treated, he steps in to stop the guy who's whipping him. And in the course of this altercation, Moses ends up killing the slave master. He kills him, he hides him in the sand, thinks he's covered it up, but the word gets out, and he's got to run for the hills. He leaves Egypt behind, and he spends the next 40 years of his life as a fugitive, wandering in the wilderness, having no influence over anyone. The greatest influence he had was over his sheep. That was it. A fugitive looking, looking for a way out of his troubles. He's on the lamb. He's a murderer, not exactly someone that we would pick out of a lineup to say, there's a great mentor. So here we've got two examples of people that we would hold up today as perfect Christian mentors, well, uh, to various degrees, and yet they didn't start out that way. So if Paul can become a mentor, if Moses can become a mentor, you can become a mentor. No matter what baggage you've got in your past, if it's been dealt with, you've brought it to Christ, you've repented of it, you've learned from it, you are qualified to become a mentor. You see, being a mentor is not saying, I've arrived at my destination. Being a mentor is simply one person who is further along in the Christian journey, taking the time to come alongside someone who is near to the beginning and helping them along the way. So this begs the question, what does a mentor do? Primarily what a mentor does is a mentor points to God. As we continue on in the story, if you grab your Bibles again, I hope you stayed open to chapter 17, we see the the story continuing. Verse 11, that as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on either side, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. And so Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the story goes on to say that God tells Moses to write down what's happened and then tell Joshua. Now why was that so important that Joshua be told? Why? Because Joshua, in his mind, won the battle that day, didn't he? Joshua came off the field of battle. Oh, yeah, we really took it to those Amalekites. Me and my strong arm and the sword of the Lord, and we just took it, took it to him, and I won the battle today. I'm a great warrior. Moses says, not so fast, Joshua. Not so fast. You see, every time things started to turn against you, yeah, you know why that was? It wasn't because you lost skill or because you started to to get tired. It's because I started to get tired and my arms came down. You see, the battle and the power to win it had nothing to do with Joshua's skill. It had everything to do with God's power. And so as Moses lifted his hands to God, God's power was unleashed, thereby fueling Joshua and the men to win the victory that day. And Moses had this great teachable moment to tell Joshua, it wasn't your skill or might that won the day, it was the power of God. And here's how it happened. What an incredible mentoring moment for Moses to say, Joshua, leading well, leading people to God is not primarily about your skill or strength in battle. It is about trusting in God and his power to bring the victory. What an incredible lesson. And so here we see a mentor primarily points someone to God, saying, as you serve God, he is the one who will give you the strength and the power to do work that will be incredible, that people will say, wow, it's so great, God must have been the one to do it. 
Because we always point back to God. That is what a mentor primarily does. They lift up their hands, pointing to God. Now, of course, the process as this unfolds points to the primary purpose of mentorship is for the person that is being mentored to grow. But one of the wonderful side effects of mentorship is that it is often the mentor who finds themselves growing just as much as the person they are mentoring. Isn't that true? How many people have ever been a teacher and it's in the process of preparing your lessons that you find yourself learning more than even your students do when you try to convey it to them. You know, I have a great job because I have to try to condense everything that I've learned in a week of study down into a sermon. And it's tough to do because I've learned more in this past week of studying than I could possibly convey to you in this short amount of time. It is such a great position for me to week in, week out, be able to just keep feeding on God's word and growing and learning. This is one of the wonderful side effects of mentoring, is that we grow just as much as the people that we're helping. Vance Havner once said, How long you've been a Christian only tells how long you've been on the road. It doesn't tell how far you've come. Think about that. Have you been sitting under good teaching, preaching, you've been listening to to Charles Stanley on the radio, you've been listening to me on Sundays, you've been going to Sunday school, you've been reading other Christian books, you've been so fed for so many years, maybe you've been sitting under great teaching for five years, ten years, twenty years, thirty years, more, and you've been sitting under all of that great teaching, but what have you done with it? Have you turned around and began passing along that great teaching to others, or are you just hoarding it within? Are you putting it into, into action, or are you just one of those people who, who just loves hearing the word, but doesn't love doing the word? See, Scripture tells us to not only be hearers of the word, but doers also. This is one of the most important parts about Christian growth. If you've reached a point in your spiritual life where you feel like you've plateaued, you've been a Christian for a lot of years, and you're just like, where did the excitement go? Why have I just stuck here and I'm not growing? Let me suggest that the reason probably is because you have not taken the next step to now pass it along. You see, as surprising as this might be to a lot of us here this morning, I say this mostly facetiously. When Jesus said to his disciples, go out and make disciples of all nations, when he said that, what he knew the outcome of that would be that the growth would not only be in the people who were becoming disciples, the growth would also occur in those who were doing the disciple-making. If the disciples had just sat there and said, you know what, Um, this is too big of a job for us to go into the nations and make disciples, let's sit down and just have Bible studies, and let's just really meditate on what Jesus told us to do, let's dissect it, let's think about it, but we'll get to it once we're really ready. You know what, they would never have gotten really ready. It is in the process of obedience, of actually engaging with what Jesus has told us to do, that we grow. And so if you're stagnated, if you're not growing, there is a point in your Christian life where you can't learn anymore, you can't grow anymore until you've put into practice and mastered what you've already been taught. There's no point going on to study calculus or trigonometry if you have not yet mastered basic arithmetic. Right? We need to put it into practice. So, let's get down to our four steps. Recognize that God wants you to become a mentor. That is step one. Step two, begin the relationship. Once you've got to the point of realizing that this is what God wants for for you, you need to start. You need to do something about it. 
Now, this seems so obvious, and yet it's often the hardest part. Here we see Moses has a need. He needs a young man who has some skill in leadership and in battle to lead the troops into the fight against the Amalekites. And so we see out of this need, Moses initiates the relationship with Joshua. We don't know how he did this, but somewhere along the line, he taps Joshua on the shoulder and says, Joshua, we've got a problem. I want you to take care of it. This is the first mention of Joshua anywhere in Scripture. He is introduced to us simply as a young soldier that Moses thinks highly enough of that he entrusts the defense of the nation to him. And this is the beginning of a long relationship between Moses and Joshua. But take note that the relationship did not just begin on its own. Someone had to initiate the process. Tradesmen, artists and craftsmen, uh, construction workers, carpenters, you name it. All types of trades have engaged in the mentoring process for centuries, thereby intentionally passing on the skills that they have acquired over years of experience on to an apprentice. Most of us know about the great artist Michelangelo. Who's heard of Michelangelo this morning? Yeah, everyone. Who here has heard about, I can't even say his name right, Bertoldo? Anyone heard of Bertoldo? Yeah, you have because you've shared the story before. Bertoldo was who? Michelangelo's teacher. Everyone's heard about Michelangelo. No one's heard about Bertoldo. And yet there's a debate in circles. The art community has this debate going on about who is actually greater, Michelangelo the student or, Ber- or Bertoldo the teacher who produced him. You see, in the same way, Christian mentorship is not something that should be left to the realm of chance or casual engagement. Those of us who are mature in the faith must be intentional about passing along that faith to the next generation and training them to carry on that work of God. That's one of the great things about something uh, like the DNT program that Mitchell talked about earlier. The DNT program is disciples in training. It is intentionally focused on passing along not only uh, lessons about growing in faith, but also lessons of actual skills, what, it's, what it takes to share the gospel message with someone, how to talk to a camper who's got questions about God, about faith, about, about what it means to live a Christian life. That's one of the great things about it. It's not just left to chance. It's intentional. It's focused. And so, too, we as believers must be intentional and focused along passing, on passing along the faith. And so someone must initiate the process. Now, When we think about this, the primary example, our our primary role model is none other than Jesus Christ. As we look at how Jesus began his ministry, he starts out by handpicking 12 men, a ragtag bunch that he calls to follow him. Now, we see here that Jesus, the master, initiates the contact. He initiates the process by saying, Peter, come follow me. John, come follow me. Matthew, come follow me. He initiates the process. Now, there are other occasions where there were those who were in the position of students who sought out a teacher, who sought out a rabbi, a mentor, someone that they could come under. Both are valid. However, most of the time, the onus, I would say, is on the older, more mature person to initiate the relationship. The main reason being that those who are younger, less mature in faith and experience, are often hesitant or intimidated to talk to someone who's more experienced because, you know, they're, they're nervous, they think they'll be rejected, there's all sorts of fears, insecurities, or maybe they're even prideful. You know, uh, as surprising as it is, 
I knew a lot more when I was 18 than I know today. <laughs> Does that surprise you? <laughs> I, I had everything figured out. Revelation, oh yeah, I know how that's all going to work out. Today, Revelation, man, I'm not so sure. <laughs> this is a tough book to handle. I, knew, I, I thought I knew more when I was 18 than I, than I actually realize I know today. And sometimes it's in that pride of youth that we think, I don't need a mentor. I don't need someone to teach me. And it takes someone older and wiser to come along and say, yeah, you could use some guidance. Let me help you out here. And so these are the reasons where I put the onus on the older, more mature person to initiate the relationship, even though there are instances where someone younger can seek out a mentor. And both are valid. Now, the problem is, is that often it's those who are best qualified to be a mentor who shy away from beginning that mentoring relationship for a wide variety of reasons. Some view teaching someone else as just too much hassle. It takes too much time, and it's faster to just do the work themselves. And wouldn't you know there's some truth to that? Have you ever been in a position where you were teaching someone to do a certain job, and you watched them fumbling away at it, and it's taking forever, and finally you just said, here, let me do that. And you got it done in 10 seconds? You ever been in that position? (laughs) Yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Sometimes, passing along a skill, it takes that extra time, it takes extra effort and work, but it is so important. The great evangelist D.L. Moody once said, It is better to train 10 people than to do the work of 10 people, but it is harder. See, D.L. Moody pointed to the truth that training 10 people for him was harder than just doing the work himself. And yet he knew that it was more, more important. You see, Moses was the leader of the people, and he could have just as easily led the soldiers himself. But if he had not called Joshua, if he had not mentored him, who would have continued to lead the people after Moses was gone? How important was that mentorship process to the people as a whole? This has always been how Christianity has grown and been passed along through the ages. One generation mentoring the next, who pick up the mantle and continue on. And it's the same today. There's this great story. When the NFL's New England Patriots began the 2002 season, this is already 12 years ago, the 2002 edition of the Patriots were mostly a group of average or unknown players that no one really expected too much from. To make matters worse, Four games into the season, their win-loss record stood at a meager one win and three losses. The only player that anyone really had any expectations of of on that team was their all-pro quarterback, Drew Bledsoe. And in the fourth game of the season, he was injured and unable to continue playing. They weren't sure if he would be returning even that season. And so the backup quarterback was this relatively unknown and untested 23-year-old. And this led most of the Patriots fans to write off the remainder of the Patriots' 2002 season with only the most optimistic people thinking that they still had the slightest chance of making the playoffs. At that point, Vegas set the odds of the Patriots winning the Super Bowl at 10,000 to 1. But if someone placed a wager at those odds, they would have ended up making a whole lot of money. Because incredibly, with the young quarterback, Tom Brady, leading the way, They not only made the playoffs, but went on to win the 2002 Super Bowl. Now, of course, looking back, most pundits attribute the Patriots' incredible turnaround to the emergence of the future two-time Super Bowl MVP All-Pro quarterback Tom Brady. 
But who did Tom Brady credit for their success that season? He credited Drew Bledsoe. Why? Why wouldn't he just take all the glory for himself, say, it was me, I led the team to victory? He credited Drew Bledsoe, the guy who'd gotten injured in the fourth game of the season. And now I know what some of you are thinking. Wasn't Drew Bledsoe the guy that just sat on the sidelines and held the clipboard? Well, yes, Bledsoe was injured, but he did a lot more than just sitting on the sidelines holding the clipboard. Because immediately upon his injury, he took young Tom under his wing. He became his personal coach and mentor. Even later on in the season, when Bledsoe's injury had healed and he was informed that even though he was fit to play, Brady was going to continue. Even then, he didn't complain, he didn't become bitter, but he continued to mentor and support Tom. And is it any wonder that Tom Brady would credit Drew Bledsoe for their success? You see, though Bledsoe could have just as easily resented the young Brady's success, he didn't, and instead chose to mentor him, thereby helping him and the team as a whole achieve success. This is the incredible chain of events that mentoring has when we choose to initiate that relationship. And so that is the first, or one of the primary steps, is begin the relationship, step two. So step one, recognize that God wants you to be a mentor. Step two, begin the relationship. And step three, spend regular time together. Again, this seems incredibly obvious, but it's often overlooked. As we continue reading through Exodus, we see that Joshua becomes Moses' aide and accompanies him everywhere he goes including on Moses' numerous journeys up the mountainside to meet with God. What kind of an effect did that have on Joshua? You see, they not only spent quality time together, but quantity time together, just living life. In Colossians 1, verses 28 to 29, Paul writes, verse 28, We proclaim Jesus, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal. Present everyone everyone mature in Christ. You see, God doesn't want to have just some of us mature in Christ. He wants all of us to be mature in Christ. He wants all of us to reach that level of self-sufficiency, of growth, of maturity to where we could be a mentor to other people. That is the goal. And Paul says, to this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which works so powerfully within me. You see, the apostle Paul was completely invested with every fiber of his being, in helping people grow into maturity in Christ. In other words, Paul lived, ate, breathed mentorship 24-7, 365. He didn't just leave this to chance or casual acquaintances. For him, mentoring was not the exception, it was the norm. And so too, if we leave mentoring only to the realm of when I get around to it, when I have time, maybe I'll have a ripple effect by, by just, you know, talking to someone once a month. If we leave it to that realm, chances are it will rarely, if ever, happen. You see, spending regular time together needs to be a priority, not an afterthought. And we only have to look at Jesus to see the truth of this. You see, Jesus didn't write any books. He didn't build any churches or host any leadership seminars that we're aware of. In fact, Jesus' main strategy for changing the world rested on taking the time to mentor a ragtag group of 12 guys that he had called to follow him everywhere he went. Now, at first glance, that would say, you know, that's not a great strategy, Jesus. Have you seen those 12 guys you picked? The future of the world is in their hands, really? This is your strategy? 
especially when we consider how inept and confused those 12 disciples usually were. It wouldn't seem a stretch to say that Jesus could have accomplished even more if he hadn't wasted so much time just correcting those guys and answering all their silly questions and all of their confusion. And Jesus, we don't understand the parable. It's too hard. He spent so much time training these guys. Couldn't he have accomplished a lot more if he hadn't spent so much time with them? He probably could have, but... What good would it have been if Jesus had healed a few more sick people and preached a few more sermons if there was no one to continue on the work of the kingdom after he was gone? You see, though Jesus often ministered to the masses, his greatest impact occurred in the time he spent in one-on-one mentoring relationships. So if it was true for Jesus, isn't it also true for us? Our greatest impact and most significant influence for growing God's kingdom happen when we take the time to invest in people's lives in a personal way. So when in a mentorship, make it a priority to schedule regular time together on a regular regular basis. This leads us to our final step, step four. Create and encourage opportunities for service. Notice that Moses doesn't just ask Joshua to come into his tent for tea to have a chat. I'm sure there were plenty of occasions where they did that. But Moses calls Joshua to do what? To fight a battle, right? He gives him an assignment. He doesn't just say, we're going to talk once in a while. He entrusts Joshua with an incredible responsibility. He even lets Joshua handpick the men who are going to fight. What a vote of confidence. You see, mentoring is not only about talking about following Jesus or modeling how to follow Jesus. It's actually putting the rubber to the road and following Jesus together. Last week, I mentioned how one of my youth leaders when I was growing up, Irvin Bueller, he gave me an incredible opportunity that set into uh, motion this chain of events that has unfolded in my life since then. It happened when I was 18 years old. We were having a youth Sunday where everyone in the youth group was required to do a part in the service, whether it was singing or being ushers. We were given the whole service to coordinate and to lead as a youth group. One of the things that we usually left to the hands of the professionals was the the preaching, right? Preaching's a whole different animal than just, you know, holding an offering plate. And so, you know, we just figured that the pastor would still do the sermon. We would do the rest of the service. But Irvin comes up, taps me on the shoulder and says, Danny... I think you should preach the sermon. And I said, who are you talking to? (laughs) Some guy back there? Not me. I'm not a preacher. I've never preached before. I don't think I can preach. I'm not going to preach. And that was it. Moses looks, or Moses, (laughs) confusing the two. Irvin looks at me and says, I think you could do it. What a vote of confidence. I said, I'll think about it. And I thought about it. And I thought of every excuse I could come up with about why I couldn't do it, why I shouldn't do it, why I wasn't qualified to do it. But finally, I began to say, okay, God. (laughs) I got out of my own head, coming up with reasons, and I said, okay, God, do you want me to do this? The answer was instant. Yes, do it. (laughs) Really? Yes, do it. And I just, no matter how I prayed, no matter how I phrased the question, it was always the same. Danny, do it. I'll help you. Do it. So finally, Irvin taps me on the shoulder a couple of weeks later. So have you been thinking about it? Thinking about what? (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. You going to do it? Yeah, I'll give it a try. 
I wasn't very high on myself, my ability, or what I was going to come up with. But everyone put a hand on my shoulder, and he said, you're going to do great. I'll pray for you. <laughs> wow, that carried a lot of weight. I prepared a message. I preached the sermon. And something happened that I have no explanation for other than that it was God. Just like Joshua going into his first battle and he won a victory, he could have got full of himself and said, oh, it was me and my skill. But Moses said, no, remember, it was God. And I preached that sermon that day, and I got up here and I was so nervous, I thought I couldn't put a sentence together. But everyone said, you didn't even look nervous. You made some great points. It's really made me think. And the, the, the service was videotaped that day, and I got out the videotape, and I watched it, and I couldn't believe who was on stage. I said, that's not me. There is no way that I look so composed that my sentence is actually strung together. And I just sat back in awe, and I said, that's not me, that's God. He did it. And it set the stage for something that God had yet to reveal in my life of what he was calling me into, to become a pastor, to preach every Sunday. All because a mentor tapped me on the shoulder believed in me and said, you can do it. He gave me the opportunity. That is so important when it comes to mentorship, is we give that opportunity to not just, not just talk about following Jesus, not just talk about how we can be an influence, but to actually do it, to get our hands and our feet and our mouths engaged in this wonderful work of following after Christ. And so today I want to just leave you with this. What is God speaking to your heart? Maybe he's saying to you right now, you know what, I need to find a mentor. I need to grow. If he's, if he's saying that to you right now, this is a room that is filled with people, potential, with le- or leadership and mentorship potential. So don't be afraid to tap someone on the shoulder. Pray about it. Ask God to show someone to you. If God is tapping you on the shoulder and saying, I want you to be a mentor, begin praying and saying, God, who do you want me to mentor? Trust the Holy Spirit to lead you in this, and he will guide you. We also want to, as a church, facilitate this process. And so if you are in a position where you would like to be mentored or to be a mentor, I would invite you to come and speak to me personally. Send me a text, shoot me an email, and we're going to begin prayerfully trying to put people together in these relationships so that all of us as a church can be both mentored and mentoring, that the body of Christ can mature and grow to his glory. And so today, I want to leave you with that. Prayerfully consider the part you can play in helping this church family to be a family that actively invests in each other's lives to the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this incredible example of Moses and Joshua. We thank you for what we can learn from it. And I pray now that you, O Lord, would not allow the nudging that you have been working in our hearts even now by your Holy Spirit to go away. Don't let us forget when we walk into the parking lot, when we go out for lunch. I pray, Lord, that you would just seal this in our hearts, that we have a role to play. We have a part in this. And I pray that you would continue to guide us into the specifics of who, what, and where, and how we can actually engage in this. Not just leave it in the theoretical as a great teaching, but to engage with the teaching. So I pray that you would help us in this, Lord. Bless each one as we continue this service now. Lord, as we come to your table in fellowship, in your, in your suffering, Lord, as we think of the cross, making all of this possible, I pray, Lord, that you prepare our hearts for this now in Jesus' name.